direction when we get there. What do you think of work, though, uh, your job? How you view it, I guess, will depend on all kinds of variants. For example, how you're getting on with your boss, how you're getting on with your colleagues, your team. Um, even, actually, the day that it is will change how you view your work, won't it? For example, on a Monday morning as you lie in bed under the duvet, nice and warm, pressing the snooze button again and again, your view of work is very different to the end of Friday, isn't it, when you turn the computer off and put it to sleep for the weekend. On Monday morning, I guess, work is a burden that you have to bear. On Friday evening, though, I guess work is... uh, it's the, it provides the means by which you can go out and enjoy yourself, to enjoy leisure uh, and relationships and travel and entertain. Now, I guess some of us will, will be thinking about work now and we love our work. And uh, it exhilarates us, it's challenging, it's rewarding. But I guess some of us are looking at tomorrow with some kind of intrepidation. It, it worries us. We don't like our work, we find it draining and demoralizing. But I guess most of us, we have to work, don't we, to survive, to earn our keep. A few of us have been born into the aristocratic families, uh, which don't really exist too much anymore, you know, such wealthy backgrounds that we can live off mummy and daddy forever, and that's not really the case. See, most of us will be working for the next 30, 40, 50 years of our lives. And I guess, therefore, our, our views on work are very mixed. We like some aspects of our work, don't we? But then there are some other parts of the work we find very difficult. And how each of us views our work will be different at different times in our lives, uh, in different jobs, and perhaps in different roles as well. I guess that is how many of us view our work. But how does uh, our culture view work? In our, culture, probably, in our culture, probably more than anything else, work is probably the defining feature of our lives, isn't it? Uh, what we do is generally who we are. I'm a doctor. I'm a, a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a management consultant, or whatever you are. It, it's the second question you always ask, isn't it? Isn't that true? What do you do? And by that you mean, what job do you have? What company or firm or establishment employs you, that takes all your time up, sucks the life out of you? Uh, and it does, doesn't it? Apparently in London, people work the longest hours of anyone in Europe. And workers in London actually travel the furthest distance to their workplaces, and they pay the most per mile for that travel as well. Apparently, we do have the highest wages in Europe, which kind of is a bit of a fringe benefit. But interestingly, we also suffer with the highest amount of psychological and stress-related illnesses because of work. The UK was the first member in the EU to successfully opt out of the 1993 Work Time Directive, which stated that no employee should work more than 48 hours. We thank our government for that. (laughs) Even though there is masses of evidence to suggest that from the medical world, that work overload carries with it numerous risks to our health. We keep going, don't we? That is our culture. A recent piece of research showed that working more than 11 hours a day increased your risk of heart disease by 67%. But isn't 11 hours normal for some of you guys? 
in this country last year, uh, amazing £26.9 billion of unpaid overtime was done by you. And perhaps me as well. In the, in the UK, we average 44.7 hours of work um, a week. That is the highest in Europe by quite a way. And that is the national average. And we know that in London, that can be raised a lot higher. We spend the majority of our waking hours working. Therefore, in our culture, what we do generally defines who we are. How we view work, how our culture views work is important. It's worth reflecting on, isn't it? But perhaps the most important question for us, uh, for many of us here, is where is God in all of that? Where is God in your work? Now, if you're here uh, and you're not a Christian, you are hugely welcome. And at this stage, a question like, you know, where is God in, in, in my workplace will seem completely irrelevant to you. Well, yeah, I'd ask you, just bear with me for a moment. Have a look about at what God says about work, um, how God works himself and, and how he's involved and related to your work, whether you like it or not. I've put a few points down on the sheets which I've pointed to you, and I hope they'll provide a framework as we look at this question together. Where is God in our work? Now, as Christians, I guess many of you are here, and that's great. I hope you find this evening, well, profoundly helpful, really, because whether you struggle in your workplace, perhaps work relationships, or find the culture at work difficult to live a godly life in, or you find it, it, it a struggle to manage your money and your time in a godly way, well, I hope this will be a helpful uh, pointer for you. I hope this evening will demonstrate to you that work can be good, that it can be enjoyable, that it can bring security and so many other God-approving things and positive benefits. But I hope at the same time to temper your expectations and ambitions And perhaps redirect them to give glory not to yourself, but rather to God alone. The first point I want to make is simply to show that we work, but we work as creatures of a creator who also works. So that Monday to Friday slog, which you'll be experiencing in what, you know, 12 or so hours now, um, is not something that God has not experienced infinitely and eternally himself. So my point is this, point one, work is intrinsic to created human existence. What I mean by that is this, all humanity shares an ability and a necessity to work as creatures of a working creator. Simply, God works in creation, both in creating but also sustaining this creation. So being made in his image, as we'll look at in a moment, we are... Two, given to create, uh, to work, sorry. We see God at work in the creation story of Genesis 1. Why don't you flip back to that if you can? So Genesis 1, that's an easy one to find because that's right, the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. I will scoot through this so many of you will know it anyway. Um, Each day or period of time mentioned in the those first uh, 26 verses, 
Um, each day or period of time, it's a period of time because the, the Hebrew poetry there allows for that kind of nuance. Um, each day, God reflects on his creative work, saying that it is good. You see that in verse 4, in verse 10, in verse 12, 18, 21, and 25. God creates, that is, he works, and it is good. And he finishes his creation. If you have a look, uh, turn over probably the page to verse 31. And he says then, it is very good. Essentially, he's saying it's perfect. God works And when he works, he works perfectly. He not only works in creating, but he also works in sustaining his creation. He holds it together. We are, of course, only just a heartbeat away from extinction, aren't we? This earth rotating on the axis, it does. It's one degree away from obliteration. God works to sustain his creation. Many of you will know this verse. Don't turn to it now, but note it down if you want. Revelation 4, verse 11. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Simply saying, this world cannot exist without God's sustaining work. Psalm 19 shows that. I'm glad we heard just a few verses from it at the beginning. Naomi read them out. Um, And there, metaphorically, um, the psalmist shows that God has metaphorically pitched a tent for the sun. That is, it's in his control, it's in his job description to see that everything works in his creation. That's what he does. So God creates and he sustains. He works and it is very good. It is perfect. But in that creation, God creates us, humanity. We are the pinnacle of that creation. Just take a look down at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. We are given a responsibility there. Um, and it shows there to, that we are to rule over and to subdue the created world. So what God is doing there, he's defining our work to a degree. We're to rule and subdue. That is to control and take care of God's creation. We're even given the pattern of how to go about our work. We see that in God's perfect schedule of work. Six days work, one day rest. It's very interesting. When I went to um, university, I studied sports science. And these great you know, atheist guys who were, you know, had nothing to do uh, and wanted nothing to do with the Bible and God at all. He said, God got one thing right. He stood up in front of us, all these kind of sporty guys. He said, God, God got one thing right. He said he worked for six days and he rested for one. And if you don't listen to him on this one thing... You will never get to the end of this course. I was quite surprised by that. But he's right. We've been given a, um, a schedule of work. Work six, rest one. We'll look at rest much more next week as we look at where's God in our leisure. But for now, let's just note that we are creatures of a perfect working creator. Therefore, you see, work is intrinsic. It's part of created human existence. For we are made in God's image, given a work mandate of ruling over the world, given a six-day pattern of work. And we're made to please God, giving him glory in the work we do, of caring for his world. And that is actually an act of obedient worship. But that isn't the case, is it, all the time? I mean, just look at, was it UBS this week? That bank, you know, all they've, all they've been going on there. There are numerous examples in the Bible as well. Where we as 
uh, creatures continue to work, but we, we step outside of God's intention. We are not obedient to his will shown in his word. That is, what we're doing is we're going against Genesis 1, 28. We're, we're, rather than subduing and ruling over, we are bringing harm uh, to his world. Sometimes it's, it's put in a kind of parallel. Sometimes those words in Genesis 1, 28 are seen as not to rule over, but to have dominion over. And the contrast is, are you having dominion over or are you dominating? Dominion or domination? And uh, we see that throughout the the Bible, Uh, of course, with Adam and Eve choosing to ignore God's wisdom and his word, choosing to dominate God's creation, acting as creator king themselves rather than dependent creature. So from Genesis 3, again and again, we see humanity ignoring God, choosing to work with their own job description, if you like, looking for their own power, their own praise and their own glory. The building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis uh, chapter 11 is probably one of the most graphic examples of that kind of subversion of God's work pattern and his authority. What results is from this kind of arrogant, self-glorifying, God-ignoring act is that God chooses to frustrate humanity as he did with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. And still today, we with the effects of what began right back in the Garden of Eden We live in a world where we are capable of working as God has created us to work. But we all know that we are also capable of working outside of the way that God intends us to work. That is because all of us choose to turn our backs on God. Uh, We ignore his ways, choosing to listen to our own impulses and our own desires and dominate his creation in our work. Rather than having dominion, ruling and subduing. It's been the case since Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible calls that sin. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And as a result, our work has been, since right back at the beginning of the Bible, frustrated. And that's where we get to our second point. Work is frustrated by human sin. Now, this is where we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes. So I hope you you know where that is. You remember the page number, if someone wants to shout that out. That would be helpful. 668. I always have to sing a song to myself because that's the only way I remember the the books of the Bible. It's after Proverbs anyway. So we're going to turn back to Ecclesiastes now. Felicity had just read chapter 2. It was pretty depressing at moments, wasn't it? There we go. But we'll look at a number of verses and we'll, we'll flit around. But do keep your finger in Ecclesiastes if you can. Let me give you an idea of what that book is about. It's a book that reminds God's people um, all is not as it ought to be. Uh, All is confusion, the writer says, uh, and meaningless. Uh, What this book does, I think very helpfully, and all of the wisdom literature, those five books just surrounding Ecclesiastes, they take our blinkered focus off today and give us an (coughs) eternal perspective. Showing us that there is more to come in life, and that must include our work. Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about our work. And this book reminds us that we can't have a kind of a simplistic black and white view um, of life today and our work today. We can't be completely detached from the world at work as Christians. 
Because life is messy and work is messy and it is frustrated uh, as a consequence of our sin. So we have uh, to live and work in, in this messy world full of sinful people just like you and me. And that means that your work, your workplace, your colleagues, your boss, it will be frustrating at times. We will never find the ideal job. It doesn't matter what the HR consultants tell you. You know, you will never be fully satisfied in your work. Your colleagues will always disappoint you to a degree. Have a look what the preacher and the writer of Ecclesiastes has to say about work. I'm going to very quickly throw you around here in this book. Get ready for this because we're going to go quite quickly. Have a look at chapter 1 verse 3 to begin with. It says, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Flick just over the paragraph there, chapter 2, verse 3. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now, what he's saying, but shown by those couple of verses, he's saying, you, we've got something to do. But he asks, what's the point in, in anything that we do? What's the point of getting up early tomorrow morning, you know, getting on a train that you will rarely get a seat on, you know, squashing yourself into that underground sweaty box thing which goes along, you know, it's horrible. You know, what, what is the point of being treated as you are by your boss? What is the point that you never earn as much as you hoped and, and dreamt about when you're at university? What is the point he's asking here? And like all wisdom literature, the writer here shows that life and work, they're never perfect. There will be good. There will be um, enjoyment and satisfaction, but there will also be frustration and bad and evil because of sin. Let me show you some of his more positive views on work. I mean, Ecclesiastes 2 wasn't the most positive, so let me show you some other more positive views on work. Um, even though we are frustrated in our sinful natures. He shows, firstly, go to chapter 4, verse 5. He shows here that work is essential. Chapter 4, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself, he says. He's saying, yeah, you have to work or you're going to struggle. Things are going to, he says, ruined. They're going to be ruined. If you just sort of say, mm, and grunt. Chapter 10, verse 18. Why don't you just flip forward um, to that? Chapter 10, verse 18. It says, if a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. Basically saying, if you're an idle good for nothing, life gets pretty chaotic. And maybe that will be costly as a result. But the irony is that even if you do work and work hard, whatever you do, he he says continually again and again, and you saw that in chapter 2, that nothing new will be produced by you. There'll be no lasting change. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10 if you can. Chapter 1, verse 10. It's pretty depressing. Is there anything of, of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Let me just give you a practical example of that. I don't know if you've ever been in a job and then you've left that post and gone to a new firm, new, new position somewhere else. A couple of weeks after that, you ring back your colleagues, don't you? You meet up in a bar. And what you want to hear from them is something like this. We can't live without you. 
you, you were the linchpin to the whole firm. Uh, uh, you know, the share price has plummeted because you have left. But actually, the reality is, oh yeah, we're fine without you. Are we, we, did you used to work for us? No, it's, that, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? We realise that we're actually fairly expendable commodities within a, a bigger corporation. Our work is never completely new. There's always someone who can take that role and do the work. Now, the Ecclesiastes does, I won't point you there, but it does actually recognise again and again human endeavour, human invention and, and success. But it always says it's temporary. It's a momentary thing. The point is you could be the greatest inventor. You know, think of that Dyson bloke with the hand dryers and all that kind of, you know, whatever. Or, you know, or the greatest painter. Or the, you know, the greatest banker. We've not had a good example of that this week, have we? But, you know, <laughs> but in a few centuries, you and your work will almost certainly be forgotten. It's momentary. But work can give pleasure. I want you to just turn to uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Because even there, though it's not um, uh, necessarily the greatest work, he says, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. But sometimes that's not the case. Chapter 5, verse 16. Flick it over if you, if you like to. Chapter 5, verse 16. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind. I mean, he's just saying, work can be really, really frustrating. Seemingly pointless. See, work in the end will never satisfy. Chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You can hardly hear the despondency in his voice, can't you? And even if you get the best house, even if you drive the most expensive car, a friend of mine sent a picture of himself stood next to his one-day-old Porsche today. I nearly sent it back with the most rude message you can believe. But why don't you just turn to chapter 4, verse 4? Because even if you get all these possessions that you, you work so hard for, chapter 4, verse 4 is very interesting. And I saw that all labour and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's kind of saying, keeping up with the Joneses, even that is utterly futile, he's saying. But in view of all this futility of work, what do we do? All this frustration that we see in work, why do you slog your guts out if it's just for nothing, if it's meaningless? Why don't you turn to chapter 2, verse 24. Given that that is the situation in a frustrated world, um, judged because of our sin, look at verse 24. A man could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. I guess he's saying, okay, it's just okay to enjoy it then. Even if it is frustrating sometimes, just, just enjoy it. It's okay to enjoy it. Chapter 3, verse 22 um, of Ecclesiastes again. I'm sorry, we're, we are floating around here, but I thought it would be helpful. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. He's saying, this is all you're going to get. You might not like it so much, but it's all you're going to get. So you may as well enjoy it as much as you possibly can. Live with it. Enjoy it. 
chapter 5, verse 18. Just don't, I'll go very through, quickly through a couple of here. Chapter 5, verse 18. He says, it's a gift from God, work is. Chapter 8, verse 15. Do note these down, look at them more later. He says, there's nothing obviously better to do, so you may as well get on and do it. Enjoy it. Uh, chapter 9, verse 7. He's, again, it's, he says, this is your lot, again and again and again. So do it with all your might, he says, chapter 9, verse 7. Do it the best way you can. See, work throughout Ecclesiastes and all the wisdom literature is presented as a frustrated necessity in life. Our work is frustrated because it falls so short of God's perfect standard in work. Uh, Sin has tainted our work and it's tainted us as workers. Therefore, I think Ecclesiastes kind of tempers our ambitions and hopes and says, don't pin your hopes too high. In getting you know, pleasure and everything out of your work. Because your job will never fully satisfy. Our work will always fall short of our dreams and aspirations. But, but given those limitations, we must remember, it's what you've got. It's all you have. So you may as well try and enjoy it. And not begrudge it. And be a misery guts. Perhaps the temptation is sometimes more the other way. Maybe I'll hit a few more bases here with you. Rather than despairing in our work, sometimes we begin to love our work, don't we? The money and the power that comes from that as well. So work is frustrated by human sin. It doesn't meet our expectations, but it also can become a sinful obsession. And very helpfully, as Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God's Points, it can become an idol. Work can so easily get between us and God. It becomes the place where we find our meaning and our significance rather than in our relationship with God. We seek the promotion, don't we? Because we think it will bring us the security that we long for, the possession that we long for. And if we don't get it, how do you feel? Well, if you feel utterly devastated, it's an idol. Success and achievement has been described as the alcohol of our time by a prominent American psychologist. But it never brings contentment as Ecclesiastes shows us. So we need to temper those expectations of what our work can bring us. That is true in all walks of life. If you stray from the creator God, if you ignore his will shown in his word, you will find yourself frustrated and dissatisfied. Maybe not for a time. There may be a cheap thrill to find. But in in the end, you will find yourself in this search for contentment elsewhere. One Olympic sprinter once said this. He was one of the guys who stood next to Eric Liddell in the famous now Chariots of Fire Olympics in Paris 1924. Thank you. He said this. A great athlete at the pinnacle of his career. Contentment? I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But he asks, but will I? In our culture, what we do generally defines who we are. I'm a banker. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a church minister. Therefore, many of us find ourselves bereft of contentment because we look for that security in our work, that meaning in our work. 
which will always mean that we'll be frustrated because of the consequence of our own sin and the sin of this world and God's judgment on this world. Ecclesiastes simply asks the questions, what is the gain? What is the profit? What is the use of working if it's going to be so frustrating? Why bother getting up tomorrow morning? Why don't you stay in your comfy, warm bed? Uh, even the, if the answer um, is actually frustrating in and of itself, isn't it, from Ecclesiastes? You are frustrated, but the, the answer you get is frustrating. Oh, it, work is of some use, yeah. Uh, some gain, but in the end it's pretty meaningless. There's little point if all we do is work and work, getting more and more tired until we retire. Because when you retire, you just do more work. It's just not in an office. It's on a golf course or working for a charity or busy yourself in other ways. My parents have just retired and they're busier than ever. I can't even book an appointment to see them. But in that busyness, is that where we're trying to find our identity? So what is the point? What is the gain for all this work? What is the use of work? Well, do you remember, actually, it was nearly a year ago now at our our annual dinner uh, back last September. We looked at one little verse, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, very short verse. It just simply says this, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. And you see, the the writer to the Ecclesiastes, uh, writer of Ecclesiastes, he can't see this. He wants contentment in his work, but it's meaningless and frustrating because of sin. But contentment can be found not in work, not in wealth, uh, or accumulating wealth and possessions. Why don't you look, um, why don't we turn to it, it's really helpful. 1 Timothy, why don't we go, go to there. First person that gets it, shout out the page number, that would be helpful. One one nine one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But contentment can be found. It's not in work and it's not in wealth, is it? Have a look what he says in verse 7 onwards. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Oh, chapter, chapter 6. Sorry, sorry. That's one one nine four. One one nine four. We need to get some new elders at the front here, don't we? Chapter 6, verse 7 of 1 Timothy. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and uh, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. And pierce themselves with many griefs. See, contentment, he's saying there very, very clearly, is not found in wealth or power or position that you get from work, but in God alone. And the the meaningless futility of Ecclesiastes is replaced there with a contented gain. How? Comes to our third point very briefly to finish. Work is given purpose in the worship of God, in our worship of God. Supremely, of course, this is secured uh, with Christ's work on the cross, enabling us to be worshippers of God and to have a relationship with God. And it's only in that relationship, with our eyes fixed on Christ, enthroned in heaven, 
Can there be an end to this meaninglessness in our work? That slog and that toil and that labour that you'll feel tomorrow perhaps. It's because of what lies beyond the grave. The hope of eternity with God that brings contentment and purpose to our work today. So I just want you to turn back if you can to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm actually going to ask John Wong in a moment, um, our el- uh, one of our elders here, some questions on this. So practically work it uh, in application. But if you just have a look at verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. We're nearly finished, so very, very quickly now. Therefore, my brother, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. See, what he's saying there is there is a work that is not meaningless. There is something to do which will not be described at the end of time as utterly useless and completely forgotten. After all that futility of Ecclesiastes, there is something lasting. Uh, And this could be in a bank. This could be work in a school. This could be work at home. This could be work for a charity. This could be work anywhere. Because this work is not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on our status. Do you see it? That status given in Christ. Chapter 15, verse 58. And the question is, are you in the Lord, as it says there? You see, as Christians, we find our identity not in what we do, but in who we are. In the Lord. See, the liberating truth is that if we look outside of ourselves for our identity, our work becomes, 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, gain. Not useless. If you work yourself, um, if you work for yourself, death renders that work completely null and void. When you die, it means nothing. If you've worked, slogged your guts out for yourself, for your gain, for your glory. But if you stand firm, as it says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, and work for the glory of God, seeing work as an act of worship, then your labour is not in vain. Rather, you'll be storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. That, my friends, is great gain. I'm going to ask John.